Well, we're going to continue our study uh, tonight. I know that uh, uh, we were uh, back in 1 Samuel 25, and we are going to do a rapid eye movement through 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, 31, and 2 Samuel 1. And we're going to begin with 2 Samuel chapter 1, and then we're going to backtrack because uh, there's a a passage of scripture that is uh, telling in 2 Samuel chapter 1. Uh, Actually, I meant 2 Samuel chapter 2. (laughs) We're going to even go there. 2 Samuel chapter 2. But before we begin, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this night. We thank you for your word. Lord, we... uh, We go through seasons in life where it's not about the accomplishments or what happens. The idea is for us to abide in you and just to be in stride with you and step with you, to be in fellowship with you and communion with you. Lord, I I look at David's life and I think about all the things that have happened to him and all that he's been through and it's a refining process. And... um, Lord, you, you want to bring us into fellowship with yourself. That's what you want more than anything else. I've heard that it was said that the highest goal is in life is that we bring pleasure to God. And pleasure for you is, is fellowship with us. Adam walked in the cool of the day in fellowship with you and in the cool of the garden. The Ruach, the Spirit of God. And so, Lord, just even in the course of the day, just thinking about John and thinking about even the news we got today from uh, the realtor and all kinds of stuff, I, it's not what you want to hear, but, Lord, you just rejoice because the reality is we see that you're in complete control and we trust you and we won't waver. And if we do, we ask that you'd increase our faith. And we just look at this process of David's life, and I, I'm just so thankful, Lord, tonight. It'd be, it's so fitting that you administer to us through this passage. So bless your people now, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, it was an interesting week. I'll share with you a little bit. It ties into what we're dealing with. Um, um, Sunday, we had the privilege, uh, Pastor Brett, myself, and one of our elders, Steve Rice, to go look at the property over uh, off of Orchard, the Nazarene Church. Uh, in June, it, um, it closed its doors, um, and the Nazarene denomination is going to sell the property. We'd gotten wind of it, and um, we were excited about it. And uh, a friend of the ministry um, committed to helping us purchase it. And they came out uh, from where they were living, and um, they were here for the third service, and we drove out there, looked at the property. Um, that was Sunday, and uh, a bid went in on Tuesday. Uh, we put a bid in. It matched the highest bid that was put, and we had less contingencies in our offer. And the next, or that the the bid that we matched was there were three folks uh, contending for it, and then ourselves: a Korean Lutheran Church, uh, a daycare center, and are you ready for this? A Hindu uh, a Hindu temple. And uh, the the real estate agent, Cornerstone, with the big cross and Nazarene and all that, um, they didn't realize that our offer was from Calvary Chapel, came under a different title from the benefactors. 
And uh, even though our offer was easier to access, the amount was the same. They went with the Hindu temple. And uh, I called the man and I just said, you know, you've, you've now put into our community a mosque and now a temple, a Hindu temple. I don't understand the Nazarenes. And I don't understand, you, I just, I can't fathom that. It was an equal offer and actually less contingencies. And he was heartbroken, crestfallen when he realized. Um, and I'm not sure all that was taking place, but um, we're, we're second in case they fall out of uh, escrow. Um, and I was looking at just thinking, you know, Lord, I, I left that just having a peace. Like, uh, it seems like this is a season that I'm not second place. We're first loser. You know, it's just the season of it just is and then no, and then this and then no, and then this and then no. And, uh, and you, you, you're, there's a lesson in every aspect of it. Uh, and the, the person that has uh, is, is been gracious to our fellowship, uh, fascinating story. And um, um, then yesterday, I believe it was, I was asked to go and meet with a family, um, very wealthy family. Uh, um, the man's brother died. And um, the man asked me to come and do the memorial service for his brother. They're not churchgoers. They're Jewish by birth, not necessarily practicing. Uh, the man that asked me to do the service for his brother is married to a woman that's maybe pseudo-Catholic, but sweet, precious family, uh, just not real churchgoers. But probably 10 or 12 years ago, I did a funeral service uh, for his stepson. And uh, then when his father died, he tried to find me to do the service for his father, couldn't find me. And this time they got reconnected with me. And then at least 10 years, if not more, have passed. And uh, I went to go hear more about his brother. I sat with him. They have a beautiful vineyard in Malibu. I sat with him up in the vineyard in this stone barn. It was stunning. And we just sat and reflected on his brother's life, his, brother, his older brother. And, and he was pondering issues in his own life. And it was just a lovely conversation. And I look at myself as a servant. Some of you would disagree with the way I approach evangelism, but I, I, I personally approach it from the concept of a servant speaks when he's spoken to and he offers his opinion when he's asked. And uh, if I'm invited into their property, if they want to know about the gospel, I'll share. Um, and, and, uh, and so we just sat there. And I, I knew that the memorial service was going to be anything but Christian. I know that there's, well, I mean, there'll be Christian reflections, but there are going to be some odd ducks there. I mean, he was an eclectic man. And I know that there's going to be th- things that they'll share that he wasn't an, he wasn't an odd man. He was, uh, that's not even the right word. He was, he was bigger than life, actually. He was funny, hilarious. Uh, the more I'm, I'm hearing his family, the more I'm moved by his life. And, um, and, and so I, I, I'm not sure what it's going to, but I just want to minister to the family. I love them. They're, they're precious, every one of them. And I was touched by it. So I, I left there and I had a, uh, just a, a love for the family. I'm driving down the hill and a member of our congregation called and we were talking and, and I was expressing this idea of, of evangelism that I, I just don't feel to speak unless I'm spoken to or offer my opinion unless I'm asked and, and that it's this relational building aspect. And I was encouraged because not only are they an elder, but they, they kind of confirmed my heart in that regard. And sure enough, um, while I was up there, I'd share with them about this man uh, who had, who, and this, this couple that had blessed us with this offer of the Nazarene church, our congregation, talked a little bit about his life. And this man being wealthy, hearing of the story of this man who was wealthy, was deeply touched to the point that today I was, after I'd gotten the bad news, I got a phone call from the man whose brother died 
And he said, would you be willing to meet with me on a regular basis? I just am so touched by... And, and I'm watching as God's hand works in every area. Because our desires, we want to minister to this community. Uh, we don't seek to offend. We, we seek to minister and comfort and, and heal the brokenhearted. And be all things to all men that you might win some. And, and touch them in a time of grieving. And, I, and, and the interesting thing is my life has been deeply touched by theirs. The stories I heard and the reflections and the, the candidness about their lives. And, and this man who passed away, his name was Bill... Uh, one of the things that touched me and ministered to my life was he never held a grudge. I've never met him, but I wish I had. I can't wait to meet him, but he never held a grudge. People would wrong him, and, and he, that the issue was separated from the person. And the way they described it, there was always a hug awaiting that. So I'm looking forward to, to Monday. I'm going to do the memorial service. Please keep the family in prayer. Um, his wife is lovely. Uh, um, his brother, his sister-in-law, uh, it's going to be a wonderful day. I just want the family to be deeply ministered to, and I just ask for wisdom to do that. So, Amen? Amen. Now, all that being said, the way it ties in with the passage is, uh, look at Second Samuel chapter 2, and it's fascinating to me. It's just the first verse in Second Samuel chapter 2. It just says, it happened after this. Everyone say, after this. <laughs> that David inquired of the Lord, saying, shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. And then David said, well, where shall I go up? And he said to him, to Hebron. So David went up there and his two wives, also Hinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. And David brought up the men who were with him, every man with his household. And so they dwelt in the cities of Hebron. Now watch verse four. Then the men of Judah came and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah and they told David, saying, the men of Jabesh-Gilead were the ones who buried Saul. Now, that's as far as we're going to go tonight in the, extents, uh, in the extent of our study, but we're going to backtrack over this because we've come to a place where this is the second anointing of David's life. Uh, the first one, you remember, was about 15 years earlier when Samuel came to him as a, a boy and he was the least in his father's estimation. Um, his, his Samuel came to anoint uh, the son of Jesse. And when he came there, uh, all the sons came before him. And, uh, and, and God said no to all of them. And then Samuel said, do you have any other sons? He says, I got one more, but you don't even want to waste your time with him. He said, go and get him. I won't, we won't sit until he comes. David came in. Samuel anoints his head with oil as the oil is pouring over. He's anointed next king of Israel. Now we saw that, that David was called a man after God's own heart. Uh, we see the first mention of that. We've been studying through David's life. And the minute the oil hit his head, we've been watching as we've been studying on Wednesday night, just this endless misery of, of, of 15 years of betrayal, persecution. He's being hunted. He's living in caves. He's in the wilderness. He's running for his life. Um, he's been betrayed by his own people. Um, he, he's feigned madness. Uh, he's, he's, he's sinned horribly. He's responsible for the death of all the priests of Nob because he lied to Himelech, the high priest. And, and all of this has happened in 15 years. And, and, and you read in, in 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 1, after this, that's how God encompasses 15 years of hell. After this. Now, I, I don't know about you, but that burdens me. That's how God views the past year and a half. <laughs> just... And I don't know what your year was like, but that, I'm just, you know, 
after this. Amen. Amen. It's, it's just like a footnote after this, after, after this, do you understand what you're saying? God, you haven't acknowledged, you haven't given me the opportunity to emote what I'm feeling about all of that. I've been, I've been persecuted. I have been betrayed. I've been running for my life. They've threatened, I've had spears thrown at me. Yeah, 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 yeah. After this, and what God says is after this, And then all of a sudden you get down to verse four. What happened after this? David became king of Judah. They called for the king. They've anointed him king. The other other tribes haven't come in yet, but Judah, the line of the tribe of Judah, his people called him first. The the, the tribe of Jesus, his name is, is echoing in the halls of heaven. We know Judah. Judah, Judah came from Leah. Leah was the woman who was the ugly one, uh, the sister of Rachel. And, and Jacob wanted to marry Rachel because she was beautiful in form and appearance. And Leah means one who makes your eyes hurt. And any woman who's named Leah, you were, you were named after her beauty and, it, and it's an internal beauty. And you also possess it externally. You're not being dissed. But truly, Leah means cow's eyes or weak eyes or one who makes your eyes hurt. And so Rachel is beautiful in form and appearance. Leah is one who makes your eyes hurt. Uh, Jacob works his whole life for, you know, all these years for, for Rachel. It's the honeymoon night. She's dressed in the equivalent of a burqa. They consummate the, the wedding. And Laban had switched Rachel and, and Leah and put Leah in there. And so on the honeymoon night, the, the marriage was consummated with Leah, who was the oldest, by the way. And it says in the morning when the veil was removed, behold, it was Leah. Kind of like, huh. uh, and, 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 and Laban said, now you're married to her. And so he, he, he worked another seven years for Rachel. And they contended between their handmaids and themselves who would have the most children. And, uh, and every time that Leah would give birth, she'd say, now my husband will love me, now my husband will love me, now my husband will love me. And, and Jacob never loved her. He loved Rachel. And Rachel, she was, she was tough. She was hard to, she was pretty on the outside, but just a real <laughs> tough one. <laughs> she was difficult. You know, she, she, she was giving birth to Benjamin and, and she's dying in childbirth and she is, she's high maintenance. And in the midst of her dying and ben, Benjamin's born, she says, name him Ben-Ami, son of my sorrow. Let him live with this. He's responsible for my death. Let him live with us. Jacob's like, wait a minute, woman. I'm not going to name him Ben-Ami. I'm, I'm going to name him Benjamin, my little right-hand man. Not son of my sorrow, son of my right hand, my buddy. And he saw the character of Rachel to the point that when, when Rachel died, he buried her and then Leah died later. And it was interesting with Leah. She would give birth to a child, give birth to a child. And every time she said, now my husband will love me. Now my, and the last child she gave birth to was Judah. And at that point, she just said, you know what? I'm, I'm done trying to seek the favor of man. She says, now I will just worship the Lord. Now I'll praise the Lord. And she names a child Judah, which means praise. And sure enough, her heart yields. Her heart yields. And in yielding, she comes in stride. Listen to this. She comes in stride. She comes into communion. She comes into fellowship with God. She has no agenda. You know, I'm I'm having this child so my husband will love me. No, no, no. Now I'm just going to praise the Lord. All this stuff, this is why I'm here. To bring pleasure to God. And pleasure for God with me is to have fellowship with him. She says, now I will praise the Lord. I'm in, I'm in fellowship, I'm in stride, I'm in communion with God. And so God says, okay, now that child, 
the lion of the tribe of Judah, the savior will come from Judah. Jesus' name will be the lion of the tribe of Judah. That name will echo in the halls of heaven. Everyone will know this child's name. And so it's fitting that David, after this, 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 1, after this, now Judah brings David in as king. After all this, what are we talking about after this? Well, that's where we backtrack a little bit. You know, when we finished in, in chapter 25 with Nabal and Abigail, then you find that David again in chapter 26 spares Saul's life. Remember the first time, he, he does it again. You think, you know, God, now you owe me something. And it, it couldn't be any further from the truth. David realizes he's in trouble. He goes down among the Philistines. And, uh, and look at chapter 27, verse 1 of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel 27, verse 1. David thought to himself, one of these days I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul and the best thing I can do is escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel and I will slip out of his hand. And of course, David and the 600 men go down to Gath. They actually go into the camp of the enemy. David states these words. He is so depressed, so overwhelmed and so miserable. So depressed, so overwhelmed and so miserable that he thinks, it doesn't matter what I do, Saul's gonna kill me. I'm finished. And the best thing I can do is go into the land of the enemy and hide there and just stay out of the realm of God's kingdom. So he goes down and he, he, he goes into the land of Gath, into the land of the Philistines. He, he works on behalf of the king, pretending like he's killing you know, God's people, but he's not. He's killing the enemies and leaving them all dead so no one knows that David is a, you know, a two-timing fugitive. But let me share with you something about 1 Samuel 27 for all of you tonight who are struggling. And pay attention. He was down there a year and four months, 16 months. A year and four months of hell. A year and four months as I went through, through the whole list earlier, of betrayal, persecution, running for his life, living in caves, out in the wilderness, spears being thrown at him. A year and four months, David is down in the camp of the Philistines, hiding from Saul, because he said, as he thought to himself, one of these days I'll be destroyed by the hand of Saul. You know what's interesting about 1 Samuel 27 verse 1? When David was thinking this, he was so close to being anointed king over Israel. Because 2 Samuel chapter 2 verse 4 is just around the corner. I mean just around the corner. And how many people have testified that David's going to be king? Samuel testified, didn't he? Abigail testified, didn't she? Even Saul testified, not once but twice, you're going to be king. Jonathan testified. Everyone who was anyone testified, David, you're going to be the king. We all see it, why don't you? And all David could see with all the hell and all the misery, all he could see is, surely the hand of Saul's going to get me. And every one of us in the midst of all these struggles get on our little pity potty and we're, we just can't see the forest through the trees. And all we can focus on is the misery in front of us and all we can do is complain and whine and we want to quit. And we want to quit because we think that surely Saul's hand's going to get us and I might as well just go back to doing what I was doing, which is living in the world of the enemy. That's how the enemy works. He tries to discourage you to get you out of God's will and God's purposes. But God who began a good work is faithful to complete it. 
And when David utters these words, and he says in, in, in 1 Samuel 27, one of these days I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing I can do is to escape into the land of Philistines. You quickly go over to verse 28, and what's happening in Saul's life is he's inquiring of the witch of Endor. His life is just taking a spiral into hell, and he's inquiring at the witch of Endor, and he's even using God's name and invoking Samuel and everything else, trying to get some sort of insight from God because he's so far from God. And, and David goes down to Ashish and, and he, he pretends to, to be on, on Ashish's side and he, he serves as king, but he's actually killing. He still, he still can't stop doing God's work even though he's in a kind of a dual realm. Um, he, he's, he's no good at being bad. Anyone? It, it, when, when you are sold out for the Lord and you try, to, you try to go down into the camp of the enemy, you're just no good at being evil. You try to be and you're just, you never can quite get it. You're just not vicious enough. And that's David. And David destroys the Amalekites, but, but here's what happens. Uh, the Amalekites come and they steal or they, they, they take David's, while David's out fighting, they take David's two wives and they take all of the 600 men's wives and their children and all their supplies. And, and David had given up hope. He'd given up all hope of living. And he's thinking, you know, I've been persecuted. I, I've been chased. I, I, I've been betrayed. I've been hunted. Uh, my own people, the citizens of Keilah, have done that. Ziklag is a state of ruin. I, I, I don't think it'd get any worse. And when he comes back, he realizes all of his kids are gone. His wives are gone. Everybody's family's gone. And not only is he lost everything, everyone who's with him turns against him. And, and, and everybody, it says in the scripture, in the passage of scripture, they wept until they couldn't cry anymore. After this. After this. Just add that to the after this. Whatever it is, God's wins. And all he, all he sees in the midst of all this is after this. They're, what they see is, I can't cry anymore. My heart's so broken, I, there's not even any tears left to express how sad I am. And, and it's at this moment where David has taken matters into his own hands. He's tried to figure out how to live in the world and still be a Christian and, and try to compensate for all the, uh, there's just something missing in his life and he's not abiding in the Lord. He's not in fellowship with God and he's trying to find some sort of sustenance down in the camp of the enemy and he's doing whatever he can to manage his own life on his own terms. And finally, he's so broken, he can't even cry anymore. And the scripture says that he strengthens himself in the Lord. And then he calls Abiathar and he calls for the ephod. And in that passage of scripture, when he calls for the ephod and he calls to Abiathar, I want to take you to that passage of scripture. It says in 1 Samuel 30, verse 4, that they had no more power to weep. And then as you see in verse 6, at the end it says, but David strengthened himself in the Lord. And then look at verse 7. David said to Abiathar the priest, Ahimelech's son, please bring the ephod here to me. And Abiathar brought the ephod to David. And so David inquired of the Lord saying, shall I pursue this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, he said, pursue for you shall surely overtake them and without fail recover all. Now, that's a great promise, but there's still a war to be fought against the Amalekites. And David gets a, an Egyptian servant to help him out servant of an Amalekite and he tells him what their plans are and so David goes down and he's able 
to take all the intel and uh, takes on the Amalekites. And then verse 17 says, and David attacked them from twilight until evening the next day. Not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who rode on camels and fled. And so David recovered all that the Amalekites had carried away. David rescued his two wives and nothing of theirs was lacking either small or great sons or daughters, spoil or anything which they had taken from them. David recovered all. Say David recovered all. Sometimes you think God isn't capable of doing that. And, and there were 200 men that didn't go into the fight and, and these 400 men were arguing that they don't get any of the spoils. And David said in verse 24, for who will heed you in this matter? But as his part is who goes down to the battle, so shall his part be who stays by the supplies and they shall share alike. And it ended up being the, the continuing process for Israel from that day forward, the, what David had established. And now at this point, David has learned something. He's broken. And the process of after this, you know what after this is? After this is, what's it going to take to get you to a place where God can have you? All of this is this. All of this is the persecution. All of this is the, the betrayal. All of this is the broken heart. All of this is the battles and the conflicts and the lying and the deception and the, the self-effort until you can finally come to a place where you can't weep anymore. You're finished in your, your fleshly effort. And you press into the Lord and you strengthen yourself in the Lord. What does that mean? You open up your Bible. And what do you do? You inquire of God. We come up with every gimmick we can think of to try to make our life work. And David says, shall I attack them? You will and you'll recover all. God gives him an answer. And, and he He's moved by it. His life changes at that moment. And then there's one more test. There's one more test to see if David has come to a place where he's ready to be king. David was always intended to be king. But this last test comes in chapter 1 of 2 Samuel. It came to pass after the death of Saul when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites and David stayed two days in Ziklag on the third day, behold, it happened that a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. So it was when he came to David that he fell to the ground, prostrated himself. And David said to the man, where have you come from? And he said, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did the matter go? Please tell me. And he answered, he said, the people have fled from the battle. Many of the people have, are fallen and dead. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also. And David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead. The young man who told him said, as I happened by chance to be on Mount Gilboa, there was Saul leaning on his spear, and indeed the chariots and the horsemen followed hard after him. And now when he looked behind, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, and I said, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? And so I answered him. I said, I'm an Amalekite. And he said to me again, please stand over me and kill me, for anguish has come upon me, but my life still remains in me. So I stood over him and killed him because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and bracelet that was on his arm and have brought them here to my Lord. You know, David had just finished fighting the Amalekites to get his family back. He didn't have real love for the Amalekites. David knows the story of, of, uh, of, of Samuel. Samuel and Saul. 
When God said to Saul, I want you to utterly destroy the Amalekites. I, I want you to kill ox, goat. I want you to kill every baby. I want you to kill wives. I want you to kill daughters. I want you to kill every Amalekite. I don't even want anything they've ridden on to be alive. The Amalekites, if you follow it back in scripture, they were the ones that attacked the weak and the elderly when they were coming out of Egypt. And when they were in the canyons, that's when the Amalekites came down and preyed upon them like wolves and went after their, their weak. God says, you go after the widow and the orphan, you, you, you've got me to deal with. And God said, I want you to wipe them out. I don't want anything living. And so Saul goes in to kill the Amalekites, but he keeps Agag alive. Agag was the king of the Amalekites. And then we know the story that, that uh, you know, he's, he's, up in, he's up there and he's sacrificing and they're having a big party for, for, for Saul. And uh, Samuel shows up. And Samuel says, what's going on? He says, what is the bleeding of the sheep that I hear? You were told to kill everything and the lowing of the, of the cattle. He says, well, we only saved the best and the people made me do it. And he says, and I kept Agag alive and, and, and Samuel's angry. And he, he calls for Agag to be brought out. And the scripture says that, that Samuel, probably in his late 80s, 90s, the scripture says that he hacked Agag to death. Samuel, it's like Marty, Pastor Marty. Hacking him to death. And and, and he, he finally says, that's what you do when God tells you to do it. And it's fascinating that Saul was unwilling to kill the Amalekites completely and obey God. Now listen to the application. The sin you're unwilling to put to death will ultimately put you to death. You can imagine Saul up on Mount Gilboa laying on his spear. Life is leaving him. Enemies pressing in. They're going to violate him. They are gonna, they're going to abuse his body. And he turns and he can't kill himself. He can't, there's no weapon. He can't even walk. He's so weak. And they're going to come and they're going to make a sport of him. And he sees this guy and he says, who are you? Kill me. And you can imagine as the guy's standing over him with a spear, you, you can just imagine... He probably looked at me and just says, I'm an Amalekite. It's like the devil himself just said, you were unwilling to kill us and we are gonna kill you. And runs him through. And the Amalekite thinking that David, King David is just like you and, you and I. Huh? Yeah. Think about this. Saul's been chasing David the entirety of his anointing. He's persecuted him, he's thrown spears at him, he's, he's chased him, he's threatened his family. His family had to move because Saul was gonna kill him. He's been betrayed by the citizens of Keilah. David's life has been a living hell because of Saul. And, and the Amalekite knows this because he knows the story. And the Amalekite comes to David with the crown of, Dave, uh, with the crown of Saul and the bracelet of Saul. And he's thinking he's gonna get a reward. I just took out your biggest nemesis and I want to have a part in your kingdom. And this is the final test before you can become king. How do you deal with your adversaries? Do you love them? Do you do good to those who spitefully use you? You see, David killed that man. 
He took hold of his clothes in verse 11. He tore them. He mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and Jonathan, for the people that the Lord of the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. David's heart was broken for the people. Then David said to the young man who told him, where are you from? And he answered, I am the son of an alien and a Malachite. David said to him, how was it you were not afraid to put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, go near and execute that man. And he struck him until he died. And David said to him, your blood is on your own head. For your own mouth testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. And the part that blows my mind is what follows in verses 17 through 27. David sings a song called The Bow. And if you read that song, it's about Jonathan and Saul, and there's not one word of bitterness in it. Not one word of bitterness. David realized that Saul was an instrument in his life. He didn't despise what he had to go through. And that was the final test. Because when we get to the conclusion here, as we are tonight, in 2 Samuel chapter 2, look again what it says. It happened after this. What happened after this? Well, David inquired of the Lord. What did he say? God, Saul's dead. What do I do? Now that I don't know about you, I don't need an answer. Saul's dead. I'm king. Let's do this. Where's my throne? I've worked my whole life for this. I've been chased. I've been ridiculed. I've been mocked. My family's been threatened. I'm, it, it's mine. Where is it? I want the keys to the kingdom. Bring them. Mine, 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 mine. I deserve this. For 15 years, I've been put through hell. I deserve this. You're not ready to be king of anything but your own throne. You can't be used to God. You're not broken. You don't own anything until God owns you. You would think that David would look at that Amalekite who killed his foe and say, bless you, man. You did what I didn't have the guts to do and now I can, I, I, I can have what's rightfully mine. I'm anointed. I've been called to this from the day I was born. Now get out of the way and let me do my thing. After this, after this what? After God reduced David to a minimum, after God grinded him to dust, after God humbled him and got him to a place where he got the Saul out of David. And after this, then David inquired of the Lord and he said, God, shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? What do you want me to do? You know what God said? He said, go up. That wasn't enough for David. He was like, what, Jerusalem? You want to go to Jerusalem, city of David? Where do you want me to go? Go up. David says, where shall I go up? I'm not moving until you're specific, God. I got no interest in doing anything but what you want me to do. Where do you want me to go? I'm not moving until I hear from you. And the word that he uses is fascinating. He says Hebron. Hebron. He went up there with his two wives, Ahinoam and Abigail, 
David brought all the men with him, men with his household, and he, he dwelt in the cities of Hebron. And it was there that they made him king over the house of Judah. But the fascinating thing about Hebron is the first time you see it, it's in Genesis 13. It's Kirjath Jerium. It's when uh, Abraham leaves Egypt and he's humiliated because he's trying to finagle his life. And he tells the Pharaoh that Sarah's his sister and he's caught in a lie and he's humiliated and he goes back to between Bethel and Ai and he, pit, he builds a, an altar there and that's where they called it Hebron. And that's where he reconciled with the Lord. Between the house of ruin and the house of God, Hebron. And in Hebron, it's a Jewish word. The root meaning of it is real simple. It just means to fellowship with God, to commune with God, to be in step with God, to be fascinated with God. And God says, I'll tell you where I want you. I want you to come in fellowship with me. I want you to commune with me. And that's what Abraham did. That's what Caleb did. Caleb went to Hebron. This picture that we see of Hebron, this is where this is where Jacob buried Leah. Abraham buried Sarah. Kirjath Jerim, Kirjath Jeroth. In this area, this is this is where every person of God has come to fellowship and yield their life and come to the conclusion, not my will, but thy will be done. After this, you see, after this, David was ready to be king. And I, I think about this, this idea of being in fellowship with God, 15 years of trial and difficulty. And God doesn't remember it. Uh, Isaiah 65, 17, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind after this. All I wanted all along was all of you. That's it. If our job, if our highest goal in life is to bring pleasure to God, that's why we were created, to bring pleasure to God. You know what his greatest pleasure is? When we fellowship with him. He's not interested in your accomplishments. He wants to fellowship with you. He wants to fellowship with me. It's amazing that we're so busy we don't have time for him. We don't wait upon him. I sat with a brother in the Lord as we were kind of just catching up together and, and his comment to me is, is he had heard one of the sermons of Zach uh, on Sunday night and, and Zach's point was you lose fellowship with God because you're so busy serving God that you don't spend time with God. God wants you to be in alignment with him. He wants you to be in fellowship with him. He wants you to be in communion with him. He wants you to be enamored with him. He wants you to be saturated with him. He wants to fellowship with you. He wants to spend time with you. That's what he wants. And if life is so busy that you don't have time to do that, you got more of after this coming. After this. And God can pile on as much after this as we need to bring us to a place where, God, where do you want to go today? What do you want to do today? Would you be specific, God? Because I don't want to move until you tell me to.
We think we got it all figured out. We're, we're agents of the mighty king and we're gonna make, slow down, spend time with him, inquire of the Lord. And the awful things happen in our life, and this is what I finish with, the awful things happen in our life when we don't spend time inquiring of him. Those are the times we hurt people the most. We just make these split decisions and these, because we think we're so brilliant. We don't have time to, we gotta make this. After this, God wants us to say, should I go up? Yes. Where specifically should I go? That's called communing with God. That, that's why the Apostle Paul says, pray without ceasing. That means you're just talking continually. You're in stride and communion and in fellowship with God. You are tighter than a tambourine with him. I mean, it's just, there's, there's no room. It, you're just, you're stuck to him. That's what God wants from us. That is a relationship with the living God. And the way that you abide with him and you connect with him is through his word. Spend time in it. Ask him before you open it. Say, God, Would you show me what you want from me today? If that's your simple prayer and you open it, you will be blown away by what he shows you. God, the people that you bring in contact today, would you give me a word to share with them? You'll be blown away by what he shares with you. Lord, you know exactly what my needs are gonna be and the struggles I'm having. Would you speak to me through? You'll be blown away by what he's gonna reveal to you. I promise you. You wanna just go through the motions and just do the kind of the Christian thing and you want more of after this? Just take it matters into your own hands. Just put on the mantra, wear the bumper sticker on your car, come to church periodically and just do your own thing. You'll get plenty of after this until God can have all of you. Amen?